Well, good morning. It's so good to see each of you. And as we, you know, we are so delighted that our senior pastor will be starting today and you will see him in and out through different services over the coming weeks. We are just so grateful to God for his provision of good health and for bringing him back to us safely. So I know that Ruth and Richard and Michael will covet your continued prayers for them as he transitions back during this COVID flu season. We just pray for his protection. Um, And I thank you for being here this morning. Well, we begin a new sermon series today called Glory to God in the Highest. And in in these weeks leading up to Christmas, we'll be looking at a familiar passage from the prophet Isaiah, usually read at Christmas time. And so what does this Christmas story, written 750 years before the birth of Christ, have to offer us today? Well, to answer that question, we'll look closely at the names he gives himself. And so as we prepare to read and study his word together, let's pray. Gracious, loving God, as we open and study your word together, we ask that you would plant it deep within our hearts, that your spirit would quicken our hearts and spirit and that you would grow something new in our lives today. Open our ears and soften our hearts, we pray, for we long to hear your voice above all other voices. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And if you're following along in the Pew Bible, it can be found on 1072, page 1072. I invite you to keep it open as we look at his word because I want you to find the riches there um, as we study his word together. Listen now to God's holy word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Every heart carries a narrative of the home they once knew, For most of us, it's a story of comfort and heartache, 
or a nuanced mixture of both. When we're young, we don't think that story will ever change, and home will always carry special memories, like family and special friends gathered at holidays and other celebrations, like the delicious smell that comes from an oven, other people's oven. Takeout food comes from my kitchen, the smell of takeout food, but for yours. Um, or even just a, a porch light that welcomes you home at the end of a long day. And while we know home is much more than all of this, we grow up thinking that life will always be the way it's always been until one day we realize things have changed and time marches on. And even when home is the very best it could be, there remains in each of us a longing for something we can't quite touch, a yearning for things to be better. And that's because longing is woven into our hearts. And as one talented young writer wrote, she said, longing is a golden thread that connects us both as citizens and foreigners all at once. And this is the paradox of home. For even when life here is at its best, in the Christian heart, there remains a longing, a kind of homesickness for a home we cannot see, but believe with all of our hearts exists. And this tension can be seen most vividly during the Advent season. The word Advent means arriving or coming as in the advent of a new era. And so as we enter into this season, we look back and remember the birth of Christ and all that his coming means to us. But we also look forward to the advent of his second coming. And so we hear, we stand in the middle of two realities. And as we commonly sing this time of year, come thou long expected Jesus, we are a people at angst as we look both backward and forward. And so this morning, if you come with longing and expectation in your heart that you can't quite name, you're not alone. God created you and me with desires, with longings and expectations. And the truth of the matter for each of us that it's often our misplaced hopes and desires and dreams and our misplaced understanding and expectations of ourselves and of others that can leave us a bit unhinged this time of year. And that leads us to our passage. When Isaiah wrote his prophecy 750 years ago, excuse me, 750 years before the birth of Christ, it was an incredibly dark time in Israel's history. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen into the hands of Assyria, and the great fear of the day was that the southern kingdom of Judah, where Isaiah lived, would be next. And the people in Judah were paralyzed with fear for their lives, for their families, and their way of life. Isaiah chapter 8 ends with, then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Weeks leading up to Christmas as people who stand on this side of Christ's first coming, 
we willingly step back in time and allow our hearts and minds to grasp the enormous void of life before a Savior. When will he come, the Savior that is promised? How will I know him? I So it was, day after day, night after night, the people walked in darkness with no relief in sight. All that Isaiah prophesied came to pass, but God did not leave his people in distress. No, just, just as the miracle of morning light breaks into our darkness, Isaiah receives a new fresh vision from God. In chapter 9, our verse our passage opens with the word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And so Isaiah is telling the people of Judah, hold on. The day is coming when this dreadful darkness will be interrupted with an inextinguishable light. A light is coming who will change everything, and he has a name. It will come through the birth of a child. And so what does this Christmas story written 750 years before the birth of Christ have to minister to us today? I believe the first message of the Christmas story is a message of hope in the divine encounter. And that hope replaces fear. For Isaiah points, us, points his people forward to the birth of Jesus. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is giving. You see, our passage this morning is really a birth announcement. As the Father proclaims, I joyfully announce the arrival of my son. A baby's coming. And unlike any other baby in all of history, unlike any other government or earthly regime this world has known, this king will take all of the chaos and all of the mess of this world and replace it with hope and peace, joy and love. It's no mistake that the first candle we light in the Advent season is the candle of hope. Because while darkness is often a symbol for hopelessness and despair, Light is a symbol and metaphor for hope. With certainty, Isaiah points his people forward to the light that is coming, a new king, and a light removes the darkness of captivity. <laughs> 
And so our passage this morning is not about the teachings of Jesus as amazing as they are. It's not about the cross and the resurrection as powerful and miraculous as that is. This passage is purely about the person of Jesus, who he is, and who he is for us. It's about a God who takes the initiative to lift us out of all the pain we've suffered the damage we've done, everything we hate about this world, our sin. And he does it not reluctantly or resentfully. He never says, do you have any idea how much this is costing me? He's not sorry he got involved. He's not looking for an exit strategy. This proclamation is purely good news. It's pure gospel which gives us the second message of the Christmas story. And that is the peace of Emmanuel, God with us. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And what we see with this king, Jesus, is refreshingly different from any other candidate we read about or hear about in the news the more we learn about him, the more we see this king is worth believing in. He won't betray our trust. He has no hidden agenda. He isn't worried about the facts getting out. Here at last is a leader who gets better and better the closer we look at him. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Unto you, the transcendent has become imminent. He's here and he's now and he's ours. As you study this language, it's so amazing. The prophet Isaiah uses this tense as if it's already happened. It's a supernatural tense. I think this is one of the reasons the Lord chose three languages with, with which to express his coming and his resurrection. As a little girl, I remember singing, joy to the world, the Lord is come. My teacher would have circled is on the paper. That's no mistake. You see, Isaiah is, is letting us know that the gifts this king brings, the gifts of hope and peace and joy and love are present. You don't have to wait until Christmas morning to open. They are gifts to you and to me now in the middle of our chaos and brokenness and the mess of my life and your life. This is not a campaign promise, but a blood-sealed covenant. And how do we know this? Because later in chapter 9, Isaiah writes, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. God is all in. And our only response is to receive him with gratitude. Now, what kind of government will he bring? And again, I point your attention to the text. You see, these two sentences are deliberately stacked up side by side as if they're meant to be read together. They're two sentences, but they are meant to be joined together. And I believe Isaiah is making a very important point. What would this have meant to the people of his day? Remember, he was in a national moment 
of, he was in a moment of national emergency, much worse than anything we've experienced in our lifetimes. The great enemy of their day, as we've said, was the empire of Assyria, and who by this time in history had become the largest empire of the world. And to put it mildly, these were not nice people. One historian I read called them the Nazis of the ancient world. And one of their kings, King Adad Narari II, ruled in approximately 900 BC. And he had these words etched on his palace walls. Listen to how he describes himself and imagine being under his kind of government. I am royal. I am lordly. I am mighty, I am honored, I am exalted and powerful, I am brilliant, I am lion brave, I am supreme, I am noble. Jeez, how'd you like to work with this guy? What arrogance, right? What grandiosity. And think of all of our sinful grandiosity. Is it any wonder that Jesus warns unless we become like little children with open, teachable hearts, we will never enter the kingdom of God? And what a relief and so freeing that he peels off the layers of our pride and arrogance, our big dealness. And as we begin to discover that God loves and cares for people all of their lives that have been too good for him. And so Isaiah is saying, here is Jesus born in Bethlehem in weakness. His kingdom was already established. It was inevitable and secure. And how do we know this? Because the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And so in Isaiah 6, perhaps Isaiah is pulling back the curtain and giving us a glimpse of the cosmic battlefield that's lining up between good and evil. And we all begin on the evil side. That's humbling. And so picture this on the battlefield of human history. On one side is Satan with all of his forces. He pulls out all of his arsenal of evil and weapons of disaster. All of his threats and power. And then on the other side of the battlefield, here is God leading out his army. His secret weapon is a baby born in Bethlehem. God's answer to all of the evil and the sin in the world is not of this world. It's a baby. And he looks over to enemy lines and he says, is that all you got? God knows what you're up against. He knows what I'm up against. And he isn't afraid. And so on this battlefield of human history, the deepest tensions of human history is not class conflict. It's not political warfare. It's much more raw than that. It's the battle between good and evil. And as I've said, each of us began on the wrong side. But to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And what does our king call himself? What's written on his palace walls? 
His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And over these next few weeks, we'll consider each of these names, but this morning, we'll look just at Wonderful Counselor. The word wonderful does not mean simply impressive or spectacular, but miraculous. Because with each name, he calls himself, he offers something new from above that enters into our deepest need. And so notice Isaiah defines God's government not merely by what God does, but by what we need. Now, there are many in our current day who seek the guidance from a counselor. Thank goodness. In fact, during COVID, there were record needs for good Christian counseling. This was such a trying time, and there was so much need. Many of us pastors were feverishly trying to build our network with, with qualified people with which to connect people in need. And one thing my counselor friends tell me that when a person comes to see them, it's because they're lacking peace somewhere in their lives. One of the many ways the wonderful counselor governs is to bring the gift of assurance in our deepest times of need. This time of year, no surprise to any of us, so many struggle with the fear of being alone. And don't let the crowds fool you. You can be in a sea of people and feel desperately alone, can't you? And the marvelous truth is that when you belong to Christ, he establishes a permanent presence within you, and you'll never alone. It's the wonderful counselor who impresses this truth in our hearts. I've shared this story, but I share it again because at the time it made such an impression on me. Years ago, a pastor friend of mine and his wife invited a missionary to come and live in their upstairs. And they had this beautiful home with a suite upstairs that was rarely used. And so they opened up their home to a missionary. And she was so quiet at night that sometimes they would forget anybody was up there until they heard a bump or a thump or a door close. And at first they would be startled and then all of a sudden they'd go, oh, that's right. Someone lives with us. Someone lives here now. And for the Christian, for the one who's placed their true hope in Jesus and has the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, living in their heart, guiding with them, walking with them, keeping in step with the Spirit. This is the person we may go through life on our own, battling our own trials and temptation, our imperfections. But when we feel the quiet nudge of the Holy Spirit encouraging us, convicting us, interceding for us, prompting unspeakable joy in quiet moments of praise, we remember, oh, yes, Someone lives here. The wonderful counselor makes the peace of Christ real in our hearts. When this peace of Christ comes to us, it's usually in moments of clarity. And we begin to see God for who he really is, which allows us to see ourselves and our lives 
for who we are. Scales fall off our eyes. And we're able to understand the world we live in just a little bit more. The Apostle Paul prays that we would experience this. He writes in Ephesians 1, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. But the opposite of a moment in clarity is denial. Those who live in denial, refusing to cultivate a relationship with the wonderful counselor, can be stressed and insecure and oh so anxious. One of the things that happens in moments of clarity is we stop blaming others or ourselves for our circumstances. Luke 11, verse 35, make sure that the light you think you really have is is really not darkness. What's he saying here? He's saying we each have an amazing ability to deceive ourselves. And when you have lived without the peace of God in your life for so long, you may think that putting all of your hopes and dreams into this temporal world is what normal people do. But the truth is you weren't made for a normal life. You were made for a better life. The abundant life that Jesus was born to give and cost him an infinite cost. And not only that, people who would realign their entire lives to his reign and rule. The tension we feel in Advent of living in between these two realities draws us to the very center of this message. What might the wonderful counselor be saying to your heart this morning. Now, I know that Christmas is not a joyful or peaceful time for many people. And some of you here in the sanctuary may be in no mood to sing joy to the world, peace, and goodwill to men. And if that describes your heart this morning, wonderful counselor has good news for you. Because scripture tells us that when we are going through our most difficult times, that's when God is closest. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So no matter where you are right now, Christian, the wonderful counselor can bring the peace of Christ to you as you and I express a heart of humility. God, I need you. For as long as we don't think we need God, we don't have him. We're on our own. And that usually doesn't work out so well, does it? If you were to take an honest inventory at the end of your day, asking yourself, was I at peace today? Or was I continually stressed, fatigued with worry, and critical? But if you have learned the art of worshiping God through the storms of life. Some of my closest friends who've been through terrible things have taught me this. You can be sure the wonderful counselor is living in your heart. Why? Because it's so countercultural, so counterintuitive. Philippians 4 verses 6 and 7 is another life verse for so many of you, and it's certainly one of mine. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 
Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That final scripture like a coordinate on a map, pleads with us. The wonderful counselor wants you to recognize that God redeems you and governs you and lives to sanctify you. You don't worry about anything. Instead of pray about everything, you can be anxious for nothing because God is near. And so we have two alternatives as we, as we close. We can worry or we can worship. We can pray or we can panic. And when you face challenges of many kinds, when you worship him through the storm, he gives you peace which is far greater than the human mind can understand. Because it's the peace that passes understanding. And it's his peace that will guard your hearts and minds. Once again, it's the wonderful counselor who applies these promises to our hearts. So in this season of Advent, as the tension of living with the already, not yet, with all of our hopes and dreams and longings and expectations for a better life and a better world, I'll close with this short story about the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Many of you know he wrote a poem after the tragic loss of his wife and son. And that poem later became the well-loved Christmas carol, I Heard the Bells, on Christmas Day. And this was written. The birth of Jesus signified the certainty of ultimate victory over sin and death, but not the hope of immediate triumph. Indeed, for much of Jesus' life and ministry, sin and death seemed inevitable. One can imagine at the foot of the cross his tiny band of remaining followers bowing their own heads and declaring, there is no peace. Hate is strong. But Longfellow knows about the resurrection. He knows how the biblical story truly ends, and his magnificent poem reads, ends with this expression of eternal hope. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he weep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let us pray. O wonderful counselor and mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, while we cannot begin to imagine your plan of salvation, it does remind us of your great love for us. So this morning, may we, in response, lay all that we have at your feet. May we come to the manger and and release our pain and burden, our disappointments, the places we've fallen short. But may we also bring our joy and thanksgiving that you would leave the radiance of heaven and come down to rescue the lost. May we be found joyful today, for it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.